this week on the Backtable Podcast. Portal work is probably one of the most fun work. Sometimes it can be one of the most challenging. It's one of these things in, in IR, then, you know, there's a lot of overlap with other specialties. There's nothing wrong with it, but it just sometimes can get, can frustrate some younger people when, you know, it's like, oh, I would like to do PEs and DVTs and then these other specialties are doing it and PID and, and, or even, you know, ablations or, you know, nephrostomy access for lithotripsy and, and gastrostomies. And you can go down the, down the line, <laughs> even, even ports, you know? So, you know, just there's most, I mean, there's most things we do. There's some other specialties that does something similar to what we do. Portal interventions is something that we own as an interventional radiologist. And I think it's good to be really well-versed in it as, a, as an interventional radiologist to provide value. That being said, you know, if it's something that is you're not comfortable with, it's okay to ask and reach out to, to other centers or other people around the country who do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Medtronic offers a comprehensive portfolio of products for the embolization of the peripheral vasculature. Learn more about the MVP microvascular plug system and concerto detachable coil system at medtronic.com embolization. This is Ali Behetti as your host recording from Tacoma, Washington. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Sahar Sabri, Chief of Interventional Radiology at MedStar Health and Division Chief of Interventional Radiology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. Dr. Sabri, welcome, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Ali. Thanks a lot. I'm really appreciated to be back on the Backtable podcast. Before we get into our topic, uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit about the training program at MedStar for the trainees? Yeah, so um, our training program is, is based at Georgetown University Hospital and uh, Washington Hospital Center, both part of the MedStar Health System. We have usually um, four PGY, you know, sixes or sevens, um, you know, have an integrated residency, an independent residency. We take two integrated a year. We be complemented with two independent um, a year. Between the two hospitals, we cover a wide range of, of procedures. We have, you know, two of the largest hospitals in the D.C. and um, in the D.C. metro area and um, big transplant center, oncology center at Georgetown and a big, you know, vascular center and trauma center at Washington Hospital Center. So um, a lot of complementary work. We are a, a large uh, health system with with 20 plus interventional radiologists and ample opportunity for conferences and collaboration across multiple sites in the community and in academics. So. Uh, it's a pretty uh, comprehensive training program, and um, you, you love we love uh, having you guys join us. Thanks for that. Um, okay, our our topic today is um, BRTOs, partos, and combination BRTO tips. We're building a little bit on uh, what Dr. Emmett Linsky talked about in his tips tutorial, and he suggested that we interview you as uh, as one of the luminaries on tips plus partos. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind. To start, just um, walk me through how you do um, a regular BRTO or PARTO. Um, just walk me through your approach, what you use to occlude, um, what sheets you use, um, what kind of access you use. Yeah, so I mean, I think that, you know, this, the starting point is deciding to do the procedure and, and when to do it. And I think reviewing the imaging is the most important aspect of it. I spent a lot of time planning for the procedure, reviewing the imaging, and, you know, like everything we do in IR, but particularly for this procedure, you need to look at the shunt, study it well, know that you definitely have a, a splenorenal or a gastrorenal shunt, you know, connecting to the, uh, the expected location of the renal vein. 
by just knowing that and, and just some gastric varices don't have, you know, spleen renal shunt. So you have to kind of know that, know the size of the shunt, know the location, how close it is to the IVC. So generally speaking, I, um, I plan to go IGA or femoral based on its, uh, how close the shunt is to the, to the IVC. The closer it is, is it to, uh, it is to the IVC. I try to go femoral. The further it is into the renal vein, um, you know, away from the IVC. Um, you know, the U-turn becomes, you know, an easier U-turn to make, I'll go IJ. So these are just a, in a quick starting point. And sometimes, you know, if things are in the middle, you can do either. And then, um, you know, the next step is, you know, which of the two techniques or three techniques you can use, you know, we're trying to kind of move away from when we describe it as a general concept, um, as opposed to TIPS or sclerosis or, you know, endoscopic to call it RTO, retrograde transvenous obliteration. Um, it just makes it easier, just like a, a big term that encompasses BRTO, PARTO, and CARTO. One uses balloon, one uses a plug, and one uses coils, uh, respectively. Or, you know, sometimes we use a combination of, of, of these two. But, you know, the, the concept for when we compare it to other techniques, it's good to use, you know, we try to call it RTO, trying to kind of push that term. But, you know, generally speaking, um, they're interchangeably. So they can be used interchangeably. So I, I usually like to use BRTO. I've, I've, that's what I've did most of my research on and, and I pushed that um, early in its adoption almost 15 years ago in the U.S. And of course, it's been, you know, implemented and used uh, extensively in Asia before, um, you know, we kind of caught wind of it in the, in the U.S. So basically what we do is um, once you get access, I try to go femoral, for example, then you then you go with a, um, a Simmons or, or a Cobra catheter, you get into the renal vein, and then from there, um, you advance the sheath. And the sheath size, usually depending on the balloon you're going to use to do the occlusion. So generally speaking, and you know, eight French is, 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 is good enough size to do, like an Ansel or any type. Uh, you can use one of these uh, tip deflecting sheets, for example. Mm -hmm. These are, you know, good option. Like, you know, there's several on the market, Destino, Aptis, and such. So you get that access uh, with a glide or glide advantage, and then you can use a, a rosin or something to kind of get yourself anchored into the renal vein. And then you use a, just a regular, you know, Compi or Bernstein or MPA catheter to select the shunt by pulling back and then wedging into it and advancing a wire up there, usually a regular glide or glide advantage. And then, you know, put the catheter up. And then the idea is to have the wire go and loop into the shunt itself. Sometimes it can go into a small outflow vein, like a phrenic vein off the shunt. That is okay because it kind of helps you anchor. And then uh, you can, uh, through that sheath, which usually sits at the origin of the renal vein, it doesn't have to go all the way up into the shunt. If you use the BRTO technique, then you can just advance the balloon into the, into the shunt. Several balloons in the market, um, you know, there's a, Python balloon, Biolod Medical, there's a Boston Scientific Collusion balloon, there's a Cuckoo Collusion balloon, you can use a Fogarty balloon. You know, there's several options you can go there. So you go up into the shunt, you try to size it to match. So, you know, these balloons are usually go up to 14 millimeters or so. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the shunt is much bigger than that, but then you try to find an area of narrowing into the shunt. Usually it's right before it meets the renal vein. Is where you can inflate the balloon, even if it's somewhat undersized, you can just pull it back to wedge it against that bend or natural kink that happens at the base of the shunt before it goes to the renal vein. Once you do that, you inject through the lumen of the balloon to confirm that you're occluded fully. And once you do that, then, then you can go to the next steps. So that's basically the first way of doing the occlusion balloon um, technique. Now, if you use the PARTO, the plug-assisted um, occlusion RTO, then 
you need to advance the sheath into the system. So you have to spend some time with a catheter and a glide or glide advantage to go into the shunt, have a wire there that is stiff enough. You can use an amplatz with one CM tip. You can use a rosin. And then you advance your sheath with a dilator into the shunt. So there's that aspect of it that, you know, if it's not a favorable angle, you know, there's that, that issue that could happen with rupturing the, the shunt. So, you know, this is one of the disadvantages of a parto over, over a BRTO, you just need to advance the balloon. Just a couple of things to consider when people deciding which of the two to use. And then, uh, you know, for the, uh, for the parto, you have the sheath, then you just put a plug, you size it, you go up 20 to 40% oversizing over the, over the shunt. And you similarly, you pull it back to wedge it. And once you have that, now you include you, um, and then you, you pass a, a catheter and a wire beyond the plug. And then from there, um, you inject to confirm that you're occluded. So the treatment you're going to do is going to be beyond the plug or beyond the balloon up into the shunt. Through, with the balloon, it's through the balloon lumen. With the plug, it's through a catheter that is on the outside of the plug. You can place that ahead of time, leave a wire, and then you know, put a wire and then deploy the, deploy the plug. And over that wire, you can advance your catheter. Or if you end up using a bigger sheath, you have a favorable axis, you can use a bigger sheath, mm. leave a catheter there, and then put the plug next to it and then pull it. And that requires a bigger, you have to kind of do the math and see that's, a, you know, a, yeah. a catheter is five French, you're going to add to it. That's a much bigger sheath. So a wire is enough usually to pull the plug. And then over that wire, you can go trying to negotiate. Once you deploy the plug, try to negotiate past it up there. It may sometimes, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's not. So it's, it's better to leave a wire be behind and then go over that wire with a catheter and do Got the it. work from there. So that's Got the it. basic concept of access. And we can talk about the next steps afterwards. How far into the shunt do you want your embolic catheter to be? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, yeah, the first step is to confirm the occlusion. And I think I can't stress that enough. Before you start embolization, you need to make sure you're, sta you're static, you're stagnant, mm -hmm. that your plug or your balloon are actually completely occluded the shunt. So now all the contrast inject is not going the renal vein. It's just staying in the shunt or propelling retrograde against the flow up into the varics with contrast. So if you confirm that, then you can start with the next step. But if it is not the case, then you just need to kind of adjust what you're doing. Just the size of the balloon, the location of the balloon, pull back okay. on it. And if you have the plug, it's not occluding well. You know, the concept with the plug is to to use gel foam, thick gel foam to kind of create that coating around it to occlude the shunt. With the balloon, you're relying primarily on the balloon to do it. Now, uh, just before telling you of the, uh, uh, the catheter, you know, there's something that when you inject, you see the contrast go up a, a phrenic or a collateral that is just, it's not going back to the renal vein, you're occluded, but it's escaping through other collaterals. Yeah. So the way to, to navigate that piece is to couple of things. One is to advance your microcatheter through the balloon mm -hmm. as high up into the shunt as possible. So you just, you know, you know, any wire can do the, for a catheter, it has to be a catheter that could fit through a, a the balloons, the balloons, the lumen of them is small. It's 035, not 038. So okay. you're limited with your options for the, for the microcatheter you, you can put through an, through an occlusion balloon. So it's, um, you know, some of the neuroballoon, neurocatheters like Echelon and Rebar and some of the 2O, for example, Prograde or, you know, so these were, or it's better to be a 150 so the taper, you don't reach the taper because most of the regular microcatheters we used, they taper to 2.7 or 2.8 oh. at some point. And so it yeah. doesn't fit through the balloon. So test it on the back table before putting the balloon, make sure it fits. But the, the couple of the, the, the catheters I mentioned uh, could work well. 
So if you, yeah, so then I do that with an 014, any 014, you know, selectively choose, choose your um, flavor or 014, 016 wire. And then you just go up, you know, make loops inside the shunt. Sometimes mm -hmm. you have to um, hit some bank shots, like make a couple of loops before you find the outlet to go to the next loop and, and, you know, spend as much time as possible to go as high up as possible into the shunt. Once you're there, more, usually you're past these other phrenics and collaterals, and then you can inject the, the sclerosins. Sometimes you just keep falling into this phrenic, uh, you know, um, collateral, then you can coil it, just coil it. And then so flow doesn't go there. Now the injection goes the other way. So that is okay mm -hmm. to do. The other thing you can just gel, gel foam that, you know, um, or once you inject sclerosin, some of it will go, just give it some time till that collateral is dead. And then the rest is going to go up into the shunt. Yeah. Yeah. So generally speaking with a Parto or, or, or a BR2, I try to go up as high as, as possible the shunt with a microcatheter. Now, if you're using a four French or a five French, you know, next to a, to a Parto, be very careful about putting the catheter, the, the four French or five French catheter too high up in the shunt because you can rupture that, that, that shunt. So I would be very careful with that. That's why I usually prefer BR2. I've seen ruptures and they're not good. If the rupture is close to the renal vein, it's usually okay. Just leads to technical failure because you just, you know, lost your chance to, 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 you know, fill it. But if the rupture is higher up, it can be intraperitoneal or, or intraluminal, and that could be disastrous. So be careful about putting a four or five French catheter more than a few centimeters, you know, high. Many probably would say, oh, I've done it, you know, yeah, but if you've done, if you've done more, you're going to run into issues. So I would say try not to run it too high. If you need to go, then use a microcatheter. If you're using a parto and you already have a four French catheter, you can put in to eight catheter in it, like a high flow. And so you can, if we use a gel foam, you can put something, you know, thicker. Um, with the with the BRTO, you cannot use thick gel foam because you're injecting through a smaller microcatheter through an occlusion balloon. So that's one of the, you know, downsides for that. So for that BRTO, what we usually use is a sclerosant, which is SDS, sodium tetrodecol. And the formula for that is usually use the SDS 3%. And then we use a three, two, one concoction, basically. So the three is air, two is SDS, and then one is lapidol, and that's in CC. So um, uh, you say you usually start with, you know, six, four, and two, make your first foam and start injecting through the microcatheter. Usually in general volume wise, you end up getting around 30 CC. Sometimes huge shunt can take up to 40 or 50 CC. If you're injecting only like five or six cc, then you probably have not filled enough. So usually that's the volume that is, um, that is usually needed. And I like that, you know, um, sclerosin because it can actually sclerose and, you know, ca cause endothelial damage. Gel foam, if, uh, when you use um, for parto, you need thick gel foam to have it, to sit on top of the, of the um, plug to make it stagnant. And then afterwards, um, you can switch to, to STS mixed with gel foam. So that would actually be good, uh, but you have to use the gel foam with it to make it stagnant. Cause if you just use the STS without any gel foam, it may just keep leaking through the, um, through the plug. So you have to mix it with gel foam. So for that, it may clog the catheter and such. So these are just few technical things that when you choose between the two to use. So if you're doing a parto and you inject gel foam, you've create stagnancy over your plug. Uh -huh. How do you mix your STS plus gel foam concoction? Yeah, so uh, so after the, after that, I you know personally, I do not use that technique a lot. You know, I like to use the BRTO. But if that's the case, I would just you know basically eyeball it. I've done it you know 
several times, of course, in other settings, but you just eyeball it. Sometimes I alternate. I'll use SDS like 5cc, then I'll give like 3cc of gel foam, then I keep oh. alternating between the two. Uh, sometimes they all don't sit very well in uh, suspension, so you can alternate between the two. But yeah, probably would, I would add two or three cc of gel foam to that concoction of, of, for example, 642. I'll add, you know, two or three cc of gel foam and go from there. And then, um, but yeah, sometimes you just can alternate between the two, which is fine because, you know, it just can become messy with all of these together in the same, in the same syringe. But yeah, and then, you know, the, the next thing is your endpoint. I'm sure that's your next question, right? Like, when do you know, when do you know <laughs> you injected enough? I'll give you the chance to ask that question. <laughs> yes. When is your, what is a reproducible fluoroscopic endpoint that uh, newer operators can look at and say, okay, I'm done. That's a brilliant question, Ali. Thanks for asking me. I was not expecting it. <laughs> so um, I would say that you need to study your shunt very well ahead of time. Try to get a sense of, you know, where the varix is located. It's in the fundus, most likely. That's what we usually do it for. And then um, trying to, if you have a sense, try to figure out what the inflow is. It's, it's not that easy to find, but, you know, if you can try to kind of locate it ahead of time, that would kind of give you a sense of, you know, where, where the, what the inflow is coming from. The more you study these, you can try to figure out if it's short gastric, it's posterior gastrics or not. But in general, usually when you inject this chlorosant or gel foam, it's going to go up to just under the diaphragm. And the next thing is going to happen is going to start going down towards the varix. So it's good to do some obliques, a little bit of an LAO to kind of, you know, separate them. So you can look in a little bit from the side to kind of make sure that you're not missing when the scrotum starts going downhill. Basically, it just goes all the way up to under the diaphragm, then starts going down. So as it starts going down, that's when the varix is. So if you have not seen that motion, this means you're still going up. You have not filled the varix. You're still in the shunt. And it could look very tortuous and be like, oh, look at all these beautiful varices. Actually, you're not. So unless it goes all the way up, that's basically just outflow. The shunt could be extremely tortuous, can look like varices. You need to get the sclerosant or the gel foam in the varix itself. So you go all the way up. And then once it goes up, starts going down. And once it goes down, you have to be now very careful. If you keep pushing a lot, it may just go into the splenic vein and from there into the liver, into the portal vein. So, you know, you keep pushing, pushing, pushing till it goes up. And once it, and you oblique, make sure you're not missing something, you know, behind you coming and you're missing it. Then you oblique. And once you start seeing going down, then slow down and watch it and can propel on its own, you know, give it like 20 seconds or 30 seconds, just watching it, make sure that it's not just keeps going on its own because it has mo some momentum as it goes downhill. And then you can just add a little bit of small aliquots to make sure you fill the varix. And if you can see filling of the inflow vein itself, that's perfect. If you cannot, you just see the varix itself filled, that's, that's great. Now, some would say, oh, sometimes I only put a little and I just included the outflow and that took care of the whole thing. Yes, there are certain types of shunts that are straightforward. Just one inflow, one outflow. By blocking the outflow, that is enough. And it may occlude and you may get lucky and there's no other outflows that it's going to recruit. But you're going to run into a lot of these. There's several types. There's A, B, C, and D. The A are the easiest one where there's like one inflow and outflow. If you just block the outflow with a little bit of gel foam and a plug, you can be, look, get a CT later and it looks beautiful. And you're like, yeah, why do they have us, you know, go all the way up and down? But the reason for that is, is if you do that as your endpoint, you guarantee that even if you get a more complex type, which sometimes it's hard to figure out ahead by imaging, uh, you guarantee that you can obliterate the shunt and prevent it from recruiting other outflows that, you know, that can actually recanalize. And that would be the, a major issue and it becomes harder to treat afterwards. Okay. That's, it seems like a pretty straightforward endpoint. 
um, I'm sure it, it sounds straightforward when you're describing it, but I'm sure in real time you're it's a little stressful to <laughs> to say, oh, did it did it flip or did it not? I, I agree. I, I think I agree. Al. I mean, it's it's not it's it sounds easier on description, but, you know, I mean, I, I still struggle with it sometimes. And you just look at it it's like, did it go down or not? You know, and it just uh, it's not it's not always as easy. One thing that I I reviewed a bunch of cases from before and just looked at them and you know, it's like a, a a general kind of rule of thumb I'm using now that where the balloon is or the plug is, usually it's a couple of centimeters above the renal vein, right? And then mm -hmm. the splenic vein is usually a little bit above that. So what I would say is if you go from where your balloon or your plug is, draw a line, and then you draw a line at the topmost portion of where the sclerosant went, if you go halfway through between these lines, if you get to the halfway point between the lines, yeah. I think you've done enough, you know, on the okay. way down. Okay. So that is, I would say, usually if I see it go up and then come down halfway, then I'm, if it goes all the way down to the level of your balloon or your plug, then you probably have pushed it too much, unless you really manage to get your balloon way up, which is, you know, you don't usually need to, or you plug that way up, you don't need to. And then uh, since you are a Berto guy first and foremost, do you do this single session and leave some coils behind or do you send them up with a sheath overnight and then bring it back? Yeah. So, I mean, when we started this, you know, many years ago, we, we used to keep the balloon because we're not sure what we're doing. And then we started with overnight and made it four hours. Now it's rarely do this. I would say most of the time you end up coiling through. Um, so basically through the microcatheter, you just, we have big coils now go through microcatheters. You can just coil the whole shunt and then deflate slowly. If you are you deflating, you see the coil move, you can put the balloon up, wait another half an hour, then deflate it. And that would work fine. So that's a basically, you know, some people call it carto, you know, but it's basically balloon assisted, you know, with, with, with coils at the end. If you, sometimes you can use coils alone. So, I mean, just, you know, people can put exactly using the plug, put coils, coils, and then some gel foam to stagnate and then go next to it. Exactly like the plug, but instead of putting the plug, you just use your coils. Now there is one technique that I think can work very well which is using a guide sheath with a balloon. So there's some neuro basically for, for flow diversion. So they're a guide casts with balloons on them. So Stryker makes one and, you know, concentric medical mercy balloon. So there's a few on the market that, you know, they're kind of a little falling out of favor. They're not used as much by neuro guys, but if you can get your hand on one of them, the inner lumen is eight French or nine French. So you can actually put a plug through it. So you can use it as a balloon. It's a neuro product, so you know it tracks beautifully. So, um, so you can take it up into the shunt, inflate the balloon, and now your lumen is big. Actually, it's it's a nine eight nine French, and then you can put a catheter through it, a four French or five French catheter, and then through that you can put a high flow catheter. Mm -hmm. Do whatever mm -hmm. you need, and when you're done, you can put a plug and some coils, so you don't need That's to use nice. just coils. Yeah, they're not they're they're expensive, significantly more expensive than other balloons, and uh, you know. You may not find them easily um, if you don't have a neuro section and, and such. So it's sure. not used as much, but I use that for really big shunts. When I try to use a balloon, I cannot find the balloon to actually occlude it. Then I use that because that balloon can go bigger, or at least I can I can push the can push a plug like a twenty two plug in there and just you know twenty twenty two plug and just you know push it in there and then you know to get that and. I give credit for Dr. Wildside, who came up with this idea, um, you know, at some point when, when we're kind of experimenting with these. Oh, so many ways to approach it. I, that's what's one of the great things about an RTO, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Thank you for giving us that brief overview of how you run through the case. That, that was extremely helpful. So now I want to talk about the topic at hand, which is combined tips and BRTO. 
So give me like the classic patient that you see where you would start with a primary approach combined tips RTO. Yeah. So generally speaking, I use RTO alone in patients who have isolated gastric varics. What that is, is they have bleeding gastric varics on endoscopy. And then when we checked on endoscopy, they have minimal or low risk EVs, esophageal varices, and they don't have ascites. These patients doing a primarily RTO is reasonable without the need for tips. And, you know, the studies have shown that these patients, somewhere around up to 10% may require tips down the road for worsening ascites. Now, their EVs can get worse, but these can be eradicated with, with um, you know, endoscopy. And, uh, you know, so that's, a, you know, a chance that you take. Now, if they have encephalopathy, then definitely, you know, that is their best option, you know, is just to do RTO alone. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have somebody who had bleeding acid varices, you just go look at it, and then they also have bad EVs, or they have, you know, significant ascites as well, and they have bleeding acid varices. So that is a patient that would benefit for a combination TIPS and RTO rather than just RTO alone because it's going to exacerbate their ascites and their, and their EVs. So that would be the type of patient I would, I would do a combination on. Now, there are some other patients that potentially could require it that becomes uh, a little more, you know, specialized and you'll see it, you know, uh, more of a transplant center, but, you know, definitely... It's, a, it's an indication, which is if you have a patient with um, portal vein thrombosis, you know, chronic, you know, portal vein thrombosis or acute, you know, so doing a tips to open the portal vein and then occluding the shunt, now you, they have a good, now they have a, you know, good portal vein that they can potentially transplant to. Another one, which is a little bit out there, but uh, we're, we're collecting data on it, which is patients with encephalopathy who have a huge shunt, um, by occluding the shunt alone, uh, usually that is good enough to improve their encephalopathy. But if they have a really tiny portal vein or no portal vein, you occlude their shunt, they're going to thrombose their SMV and they're going to be in bad shape. So for these patients, I would occlude their shunt, although they have encephalopathy, and place a TIPS. And it's have to kind of, you, there's always a double takes, like why are you placing a TIPS for encephalopathy? But you know the idea is we're going to embolize a very large shunt and place a smaller TIPS that is more controllable then like you, you, you end them, you end up with a seven or eight millimeter tips and then you include a, you know, a two centimeter shunt. So now you replace one bad shunt with a good shunt and their cephalopathy improves a lot. So these are the combination cases that I would see, but the most common or classic of them would be a bleeding gastric varices with ascites or high risk EVs. Okay. And when you do do a combined procedure, you do the tips first in all of the combined cases? Yes, I would say uh, I, would, I would do the tips first. It just helps you with the anatomy. You know, when we're doing RTO, you're doing, you're doing somewhat blind, like you're injecting against the flow. So you're just, you know, saying where the flow is going to go as, as you push it against it into the inflow. But, you know, here you're going to be in the portal vein, might as well start with that. So I would just get the tips in first, go into the splenic hilum, do a run, and just know how many inflows do I have, what the anatomy looks like, what the shunt looks like, and just have a good sense of what's going on. And then from that point, we'll decide of, do I do a, what's called a BATO, like anti-grade embolization of the shunt, or retrograde, or both anti-grade and retrograde, in addition to the tips. So, you know, generally speaking, if you have gastric varices, high-risk gastric varices that bled, or they are high-risk now, they haven't bled, to eradicate them, just simply placing a tips alone 
is not going to eradicate it. All right. Simply coiling the origin of that, simply coiling the posterior gastric drain is not going to eradicate these gastric varices. They're going to recruit other, other veins, short gastrics or left gastric, and they're going to, you know, fill again. So it's been, you know, several studies have been done. We looked at it, you know, there's a couple of studies from Asia, Dr. Gable looked at it from um, Illinois, and they, several studies have shown that these gastric varices bleed at a lower gradient by just simply coiling the origin is not going to be enough. You need to sclerose the shunt itself. You need to sclerose the gastric varices to get complete obliteration. So that's why whether you do that with an anti-grade approach by filling it, you know, putting a balloon at the origin of the posterior gastric vein, you know, go up with a micro, sclerose it with STS or gel foam, and then coil the origin. So that would be a, a very good option. You know, you can put a plug, go next to the plug with a catheter, similar to what you do retrograde, but you just do it integrate through your tips sheet, you know, after you place your tips. So I would just go and place the tips, get the stent out of the way, dilate it, and then go into the splenic vein and do the, all the embolization. I find myself more likely than not with a, when I have a big splenorenal shunt to make the BATO go easier, I go from retrograde, from femoral, and I place a balloon or a plug at the splenorenal shunt origin. Basically, so go up to the axis that we just talked about. You go up in the renal vein, up into the shunt, balloon or plug, you know, pull it back, you know, wedge it, make it stagnant, but then do the embolization from the tips axis, from the antegrade, you know, from the splenic vein, get up there. You already occluded your outflow. You have, you have the, the varices pretty much jailed, and now it's, you can do whatever you want. So now you, it's easier to do an antegrade because you're closer to the varix. So you can just go from there instead of trying to fight, you know, fight your way backwards. You know, you're, you're cheating now. You, you're already there. <laughs> um, I mean, of course, I'm going to do it backwards because I just like to make it harder myself. <laughs> but I usually, if I end up doing this way, the fellow complains like, you know, no, no, let's try to do it because I want to learn how to do it from retrograde. It's like, well, it's, yeah, <laughs> depending on the day and how, when we started. But, oh, but sure. yeah, you try, you try to do it antegrade. And then from there, as I said, you have a lot of options. You know, I like STS. You know, I think it's, it, it works very well. Can use gel foam, but it, the idea is to sclerose the varix itself and then coil it to decrease the chance of it recruiting other inflows. And then you just remeasure your gradient afterwards, and then you decide on your, you know, how much more to balloon your 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 tips. So I would maybe you can start with a you know seven or something, measure the gradient afterwards, embolize the shunt, integrate, retrograde, all that stuff, and then remeasure the gradient most likely it's going to go up. Then you can go with the balloon, go up to eight, nine, 10, whatever is needed to, to optimize your, optimize your, um, your gradient afterwards. And it sounds to me like you're doing all of these combined procedures as a single, single day, single session thing. Is there ever a situation where you put a tips in like, and have them come back and do the BRTO afterwards or, or the combined BRTO, BATO afterwards? Yeah. I mean, depending how long the tips took, to be honest with you and uh, yeah. how, how, you know, complicated the access was. And, you know, sometimes we've had these, you know, portal vein recan for PVT, you know, that's, these can be problematic in a way. And, and, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time getting access. So you have high radiation dose and such, and then you can bring them back and do the shunt later. If they have recent bleeding from gastric viruses or, or, or just, just bleeding now, no, we're, we're finishing all at the same time. But if it's, uh, you know, they have to, I mean, there's a scenario, they have a Big splenorenal shunt, no bleeding varices, just big splenorenal shunt. 
and they have Asadis, right? So, you know, if they scope them and there's no bleeding gastric viruses, the reason to do the procedure was for Asadis, but they do have a big splenoidal shunt. I would do the tips, major gradient, and see how they're doing. You know, if they're, if they're fine and everything is okay and the gradient is reasonable, probably can leave that shunt alone. Um, and then see how they do. But if it's the grin is very low, then I'm in occluding the shunt to prevent them from having a bad encephalopathy. But the grin ended up being like seven or eight or something. We may just watch them and see if they, and then check. And if they have encephalopathy, you have to come back and then occlude that shunt. And then, you know, to have the direction of flow through the tips. So these are some of the times I would do it as a staged approach rather than doing it at the same time. So it's all the, all these, I mean, I think it's a lot of factor time and time in the procedure. I would say just I'm trying to think about it dictates most of the time, you know, how long we've been in the procedure, radiation dose and such, and a seizure time would probably dictate this more than anything else. Yeah. I guess one of the benefits of doing it all at once too, is, um, you have the patient under GA presumably for your tips and then mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you can just you do the Berto at the same time. Or, but when you bring back somebody for a elective or semi-elective BRTO or RTO, do you do those under sedation or do you do them under GA? I think sedation does fine. We've done many under sedation. You know, uh, it's depending on anesthesia availability for you. I mean, you know, uh, it's just something, you know, all about local environment. You know, right now, sure. the way we have yeah. it is we have several anesthesia teams that we have to use and all the stuff. So I'm doing my, case, my these cases with anesthesia just because of, mm. of, of that. But in any other setting, I don't necessarily have to do them with anesthesia. Got it. I'm sure this has changed over the past five to 10 years with the advent of ICE uh, guidance for tips, especially in portal venous reconstruction cases. But can you walk me through a situation where you've had to do anagrade access through the spleen to get to the splenic vein for shunt embolization? Yeah. So I would say that um, I have one scheduled tomorrow. So it's, uh, oh. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a lot of these portal vein thrombosis cases, uh, especially splenic, splenic vein thrombosis. Where you just, uh, your access to the, to the portal vein is, is going to be, you know, hard to do if, if you, if, if you have, you know, cavernous transformation or you don't have a, you know, an intrahepatic portal vein to access, then, uh, then it's a transplantic access. And, uh, you know, we, you know, just can present our data at, at SIR, hopefully that, you know, it's, it, it's I'm having a much lower threshold to go to the transplantic access. For a lot of my cases that we spend a lot of time trying to get into the portal vein anagrade. So that I would say is a common scenario that I would do, especially for these portal vein thrombosis. Now, you may end up having a patient with, you know, let's say encephalopathy and a huge shunt that the angle to get to it is is better from the splenic rather than from the hepatic axis. You know, it's like a backwards turn from the hepatic. But we just access from the splenic and embolize that shunt that way. So that is a you know, something that, you know, we've done in cases where, you know, I would say you're, you know, you're trying to do a BRTO and trying to go retrograde and, and you're end up not, and it has had to do this a couple of times where the inflow, I suspected there's two large inflows and I tried to kind of reflux up and it's just not pushing into the varics anymore. I, I feel like there's more than inflow, one inflow coming. These are rare, but they're complex inflow types. And then I would just get into that spleen. Um, or transhepatic, either ways, and then basically do a venogram just to see what the inflow looks like to kind of help with finalizing. You know, you can then do a little bit of anagrade and retrograde at the same time if you're just doing a BRTO and not leaving the tips behind. So I had that, a patient with encephalopathy and gastric varices, and we wanted to do BRTO, 
and um, to, to lock their shunt, their portal vein was was fine, but they just had this big shunt. So did the BRTO, but it was just anatomy was complex. And and sure enough, I did transplenic access injected. There's two inflows, um, so that's why I could not reflux enough into them. So I just used to occlude one, and I, I I used the balloon to occlude one anagrade, and then with the retrograde, I filled both inflows, then embolized on the way out into the spleen and the way out and and got out. I could have done that transpatic, yeah, but now we're getting more comfortable with transplenic that, you know, even if I have a stomal varix or something, um, or, you know, that I need access for, I'm just going transplenic now because we're doing it, you know, much more frequently and it's easier to find. Can you walk me through your setup for transplenic access and what, what's made you more comfortable with it? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I mean, the spleen, there's, there's one thing, right? Just the veins, you know, well, there's an otter too, but you know, chances of hitting <laughs> that is, is, um, is less except that, um, a case I did a couple of months ago, we got access like, oh, the wire's flying. We put in, we injected, we're in the splenic arteries. Like, what are the odds? <laughs> I mean, really? I know, right. Anyways, so, um, yeah, that was fun. But, uh, but then I would say that, yeah, I mean, you know, you can do transpatic, uh, but you know, if you're doing a, you know, gun side tips or, you know, recolonization, you, you need a access the other way around. So, so that the splenic become, becomes helpful. Yeah. So, I mean, um, ultrasound, ultrasound guidance, I think just made it much easier. You just look at it and, um, try to find a good angle to get into it. I use a, an echo tip needle, Chiba and ride one of these, and then, mm-hmm. you know, try to, um, be exactly in the middle of it. It's all about good ultrasound skills, trying to kind of puff your way here and there. It doesn't work. You have to be smack in the middle of the vein with the echo tip needle in it when you put your wire, because the wire is always going to go. Like I use a nitrox wire, for example, but it's always going to go. I mean, it's going to, oh, yeah. look at that. It looks great. It's going to like <laughs> dissecting through the tissue and, you know, go everywhere else. So you have to be, and then you upsize it with an AccuStick or an set or what have you. And then all of a sudden you're like in the middle of nowhere. So you need to see your needle in the middle of the vein to confirm that you're there. The more you do it, it's a good skill to have. And this is what we do. We do it for nephrostomies. We do it for, you know, everything sure. else for non-dilated nephrostomies for ability. So we, we used to do this stuff. And, and I, you know, I'm going you know, a lot of times it go closer to the hilum. That's fine. You know, it's okay. I mean, it's like, you know, some of the veins interparenchymas are, you know, are harder to get into. I mean, get closer to the hilum. It's fine. I mean, there's no major issues. You're coiling the track anyway, so it's not a big deal. Yeah. So that's what I, I use, uh, you know, spend time and just make sure that that is the most important aspect of the case and, you know, spend as much time as possible to do it. Um, keep telling this joke. I, I was, I was, um, I did a workshop, uh, for, transplenic access um, in Jordan. Um, that's where I'm from originally. So they kind of lined up two cases for me and there's a bunch of people in this room watch, came to watch, to watch me do a transplenic access. And for the life of me, I could not find a splenic vein. <laughs> I was like, of course. <laughs> great. That's exactly what these guys like came for. You know, eventually we did and we finished two cases by 10 PM and it was two very long, difficult cases, but you know, it's just, um, it, it sometimes kind of, it's very humbling and you just spend as much time as, as possible and you may not get into it, but you just, if you kept cutting corners and trying to push the needle and keep creating full spaces, doesn't help. You just need to be very patient. See your needle in the vein and go from there. And then, uh, yeah, I just then I put an AccuStick and then go from there. If I'm doing a recan, I put an ansel sheet and, and do the work from there. And, and on the way out, I can embolize anything you want. Some people use MV plugs. I use usually coils, like MRI coils with, with like a lot of, um, you know, fibers on them, them on the way out. Well, thank you for sharing that anecdote because um, hearing that you have trouble with cases sometimes makes me feel better. And I'm sure it makes a lot of younger IRs feel better when we're struggling with stuff. You should see me yesterday. <laughs> we're recording this on a weekend. <laughs> should see me yesterday. Yeah, I went to bring a patient twice because I struggled with the first time around. So yes, 
The struggle is real. The struggle is real. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, This is a really straightforward question, and I think I know the answer, but just to hear you say it would be helpful. Would you do a BRTO on somebody who you know could not get a tip, like if they had an HCC or a history of encephalopathy or right heart failure or some other contraindication of tips, but they had bleeding GBs? Yeah, I mean, these are harder. I mean, of course, now you have to have a good discussion. I mean, like goals of care, you know, and what we're, what we're trying to accomplish here. But I mean, if they have a bleeding ethic virus, they could not get a tips. Yeah, I would do a BRT alone. And then, you know, just, uh, you know, to stop the bleeding um, or to help them with encephalopathy, if that's, that's what, we're, what we're going after. And, you know, this comes up, comes up frequently. Okay. Could you please talk a little bit more about your post-op follow-up imaging and when you see them in clinic? Yeah. So... Usually, um, you need to get a confirmation that you obliterated the varices. And I usually like to do this within a couple of weeks, up to most, most, you know, no longer than four weeks. I usually do that by imaging. So CT is very good. By the way, for pre-op, I like CT more than MRI. It shows the details. The, the resolution is better for uh, finding that, that, you know, find exactly where the veins com- come from and, and such. So that's why I usually... You know, follow up with CT, MRI is more beautiful because you have, when you use lipidol, it can, you know, kind of block things some, but it's nice to see it. Either ways would work. Yeah, around, I would do it around two to four weeks um, for that. If it's just BRTO, if it's just BRTO, I'm fine with four weeks just doing an imaging and, and go from there. And usually they have them scoped within three months and then they get scoped at six months and then annually to watch for EVs. So three, six, and then one year, and then um, annually thereafter to watch for EVs. If it's a TIPS, generally speaking, our TIPS will bring it back in two weeks for ultrasound. Uh, so if it's a TIPS plus BRTO, I'll do an ultrasound and CT at two weeks, and then um, and then we'll go from there. That's fantastic. I think you've covered most of the stuff I want to talk about. Is there is there anything else that you would like to talk about in regards to uh, TIPS and BRTO? Any other pearls for us? Yeah, I mean, um, I would say portal work is probably one of the most fun work. Sometimes it could be one of the most challenging it's one of these things in, in IR, then, you know, there's a lot of overlap with other specialties. There's nothing wrong with it, but it just sometimes can get, can frustrate some younger people when, you know, it's like, oh, I would like to do PEs and DVTs and then these other specialties are doing it in PID and, and, or even, you know, ablations or, you know, nephrostomy access for lithotripsy and, and gastrostomies. And you can go down the, down the line, <laughs> even, even ports, you know? So, you know, just there's most, I mean, there's most things we do. There's some other specialties that does something similar to what we do. Portal interventions is something that we own as an intervention radiologist, and I think it's good to be really well-versed in it as, a, as an intervention radiologist to provide value. That being said, you know, if it's something that is you're not comfortable with, it's okay to ask and reach out to, to other centers or other people around the country who do more of it. And um, that's something that um, I, I would say spend as, as much time as possible reading about these topics, uh, recanalizing portal veins, you know, how to do a complex, you know, splenic access you know, how to do a, you know, recalization, when to embolize uh, the shunt, when not to embolize it. I think, you know, all the questions you asked, Ali, were excellent. I hope we gave an answer about, um, you know, some of these um, that kind of help people get started on the, on the, on the right track. But yeah, you can, uh, you know, uh, read more about it. There's several articles that were put out there, you know, as a um, how-to and, and things like that that are good. Yeah, just to spend the time and effort to learn to learn about this uh, about this topic will will we'll serve it quite well because usually as an IR you're the only hope for some of these patients when there are no sure. many other options for them to do. One other thing about just other options for these patients that I like to kind of emphasize is there's you know the, the other alternative for for EVs is more banding and 
can be done. You know, I'm sure you talked about in the previous podcast about the need for early, early tips uh, for patients who had a history of, of, of bleeding uh, varices. With gastric varices, the options are limited. The options are limited. There are no banding. So basically, it's glue. And glue is the main option there. Most centers around the country are not comfortable with doing glue for, for gastric varices. So depending where you are, you may have some expert, you know, location, like expert providers who do this uh, for glue. But uh, we did a study comparing, you know, glue and, and BRTO and showed that BRTO uh, in several aspects has, has, has uh, the upper hand over, over glue. So it is, it is a good technique that there's not a whole lot of other options uh, for it. And the last thing I want to say, whatever you do, if you have somebody with bleeding gastric varices, please, please, please do not just place the tips and coil the origin and then post it on Twitter and put a mic drop you know, emoji or something like this. Uh, <laughs> generally frowned upon. Got it. Just, okay. Won't do that. Right upon. I'm going to cancel sure. my plans for the rest of the day. <laughs> yes. Make sure to make sure to scrolls the varix, then mm-hmm. put the coil. Mm-hmm. Don't just mm-hmm. coil it and then think that you've, you've done all what you need to do there. Yeah. Yeah. One kind of a clinical question. When you moved from UVA to Georgetown, you were probably one of the only people doing BRTOs up there. So how did you raise awareness that you could provide this new procedure to basically to your referring doctors who probably had never heard of it, was wondering what it was, and were probably uh, cynical that it would work? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, luckily for me here, we have excellent providers who've done it before, other IRs and some of my colleagues who've, who've done it before. So it was not, the awareness was not that, and we're, there's some proximity and I interacted with some of the hepatologists before. So it was not that, uh, um, you know, a kind of bigger hill to climb, but we have the, the hospital center, for example, it was less of an issue. Uh, sorry, it was more of an issue because it says two hospitals that we cover. So for example, so the other one, it was um, a little harder to, to convince, but yeah, talking to hepatologists was, was the main, was the main way and to GI doctors. Some of the GI doctors, I was surprised that they have no idea that this exists. So basically, I just gave a, gave a lecture to the GI fellows and you know and to the uh, to the GI department, and then we did a dinner thing, and you know I did it also you know via Zoom afterwards and all that stuff. So I think just uh, um, so yeah, that's something that we had to kind of bring up and, and how to resuscitate gastric varices, for example, not to you know keep pouring plasma and blood and and, and load them with fluid, and they keep increasing the portal pressure and they keep bleeding yeah. worse. I mean, the, yeah. that's not the solution. The solution is to put a Blake more, stop the bleeding now, and then call me, and then we'll do it. And on that note, just quickly on the, on the emergency, gastric versus bleeding, I usually I think BRTO can work fine, and there's a lot of that is in, is in Asia mostly. I still tend to end up getting a TIPS access if the portal vein is, is open. Oh. I feel things can go faster and I can... I could do a TIPS and BRTO at that setting rather than BRTO alone. If somebody is like bleeding on the table, like there's like, a, Got it. you know, now I've done it before with patients who have other issues or the portal is not that great or something. And then I just wanted to do a quick fix. I know several who've done it and I think it works well for me. If I think I can get TIPS access, you know, usually just, it's not that hard to do it. If the anatomy mm-hmm. is good, I would mm-hmm. just get the tips and do tips BRTO at the same time rather than just doing BRTO because if things don't work well and all the stuff and you're struggling, stumbling, it's one of these harder ones. Sure. And a bleeding patient, you could help them a great deal by decreasing their pressure. So unless they have like bad encephalopathy or something, um, I usually end up doing tips BRTO for emergency, acute bleeding with a, like a Blake Moron. I'm not saying that it doesn't work. There's paper about it. People have done it and have success with it, but that's been my preference so far. 
Okay, that's good to know. That's a lot of the referrals that we get in our uh-huh, practice. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, um, well, thank you so much, Sahar, for uh, for for being on the podcast again. Really appreciate it, and thanks for talking to me. It was good to talk to you after a long time. I know. We loved having you with us as a resident of fellow. Oh. It's so <laughs> awesome to see you, this shining star, doing awesome work. So so great to see you again, Ali. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye bye. 